I am in Battery Park City in Lower Manhattan in New York. It's a great vibe here. There are kids playing volleyball, people walking their dogs, playing with their kids. There's restaurants around. A lot of people are out jogging. I'm right now on the waterfront facing Jersey City, and right across the Hudson River, I also see the Statue of Liberty, and it's just a really nice atmosphere. I'm going to go and talk to some people and see how they feel about living in Battery Park City. Did you move here specifically because it is a planned community? I don't want to say that it was... No, it wasn't because it was a planned community. It was just was familiar with it, not knowing it was a planned community, and yeah. I was like, this is beautiful. <laughs> Lived on the Upper East Side, I lived in Sunnyside, Queens, but yeah. this is, I can't wait to get home. Yeah. How <laughs> are some things you like or dislike about living in Battery Park City? I like the location. I like the fact that it's relatively quiet. I love the fact that it's by the water. Mm. It happens to be very close to, to where I work. To tell you the truth, we never really thought of it as a planned community. It, it, it happens to be, but we never thought about it that way. The first planned community in the United States, Riverside, was built in 1869 by Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox, the designers of New York City's Central Park. This type of green, affluent community quickly became a touchstone for other planned communities around the U.S. From Palos Verde Estates at the most southern part of Los Angeles County to Celebration Florida and Poundbury in the United Kingdom, like it or not, Planned or master communities are a part of our world. However, if we take a step back, what is it really like to live in these communities? What does their rising popularity say about our relationship to the existing world around us? And what happens when thousands of like-minded people abandon the cities and suburbs for their own slice of utopia? And by utopia, we mean a place with limited housing supply, strict rules, and dues of all sorts which can make it out of reach for mere mortals. Is it a bit like living in the Emerald City or something that simply boils down to choice? Disney recently announced it was building Catino, a branded planned community in Rancho Mirage, California. Meanwhile, Latitude Margaritaville communities are expanding into Texas. In 2021, the New York Times reported that planned communities are the fastest growing part of the American housing market. In this episode, I'll speak with Emily Tallon, a professor of urbanism with a keen eye on planned communities as they relate to the built world. Throughout this episode, we'll also hear from Peter Kindle, principal at Skidmore Owings and Merrill LLP, about The Point, a planned 15-minute community outside of Salt Lake City, Utah. And we'll hear from television producer Casey Kasperzik, a resident of Playa Vista, which is a planned community in Los Angeles. So let's go back to the beginning and discover how and why we got here. I'm Miriam Sobe, and this is Changing Places. In order to understand how we got here, I'm going to chat with Emily Tallon, a professor of urbanism from the University of Chicago, who has a keen eye on the world of planned communities. Emily Tallon, welcome to Changing Places. Thanks so much. Emily, if we go back to Riverside, the first planned community located outside of Chicago in the United States, it was intended for a more affluent resident and still is for the most part. One of the most striking things is that Riverside and Central Park share the same designers, Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vaux. If we look at how a planned city park and a planned community sprang from the thoughts of these two men who imagined these spaces which were not intended for everyone, 
It makes me wonder, and this question has two parts, <laughs> so apologies. What do you know about the goals Olmsted and Vaux had for the original plant community and how significant was the shift in mindset towards plant communities? They wanted to provide a place where people could escape the industrial city, escape in particular the immigrant thronged city and industrial pollution. So the paradox there is that they're creating a world outside of the city for the affluent who are in fact wholly dependent on that immigrant thronged polluting industrial city. So that doesn't bode very well for the kind of, in a kind of moral high ground kind of way. It's really speaks volumes that these were park planners creating a world out there on the outskirts of Chicago that was to be the rural antidote to the city. So a way to really get in touch with nature out there by not having to deal with, with the city. That's the negative side. There's a positive side to it, too, which is that it was a chance to really think through some design issues about how to plan the suburb. This was a railroad commuter suburb, so it was transit-linked. At least it had that. That's saying a lot more than the typical American suburbia, which is not at all transit-linked usually. And it was a chance to do some really innovative things design-wise. Riverside is beautiful and unique and iconic, and I don't think we should lose sight of those kinds of important design lessons that he was able to explore out there in in the rural part of America. Well, was it significant to have this sort of planned community idea pop up? Planned communities are a lot of different things and have been around since the dawn of time. The Greeks did planned communities. The ancient world was all about planned communities and colonies. We have colonial settlements that were often considered to be planned communities. We have garden villages. We have neighborhoods. Those are planned communities of sorts. So, as I say, they have pluses and minuses to them. Right. And I think, as I'm thinking about different ideas of planned communities, military bases come to mind as a type of planned community. Is there some sort of divisiveness that happens when there's these places where like only certain people get to go to and not others? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think a planned community fosters social division by definition, really. You are segregating out a certain segment of the population when you do a planned community, unless you're incredibly intentional about wanting that planned community to be representative of society as a whole. And that doesn't happen very often. That requires interventions that a lot of, you know, developers aren't usually willing to to partake in. Public-private partnerships, nonprofit sector getting involved, it can be fairly complicated. So yeah, I, I totally agree that there is a sort of polarizing factor to the planned community by definition. There's a social fragmentation going on. I also wonder too, just in terms of divisiveness, it's like there's folks who are living, let's say, in a regular neighborhood and then there's folks in planned communities and it's they can come into the regular neighborhood at any time they want, but I can't go into the planned community. And how that does that seed any issues? Yeah. That, again, there's a polarization is just being baked into the whole system. Now, you can have you can even have gated trailer parks. You can have gated communities of all kinds and 
Planned communities that are gated are a special category of things. And that's even worse, if, in my opinion, it really, one of the things it does is it shuts people off in a way that they somehow don't feel they don't have to have civic responsibility for the world out there and other people. And this is going on all over the world in places like India. There's just rampant gated communities and right outside the gate is incredible poverty. And but if you're in this kind of sheltered world in this bubble, you can kind of shut the rest of the world off, shut those social problems off. And that's just I think it's a really awful way to for human settlement to be. That's a good point. I'm just thinking that's probably something that folks want to do just to get away from what's happening in society. But if we look at the past, has a planned community ever successfully integrated into the space or community which it's built in? I think it it needs to not be gated, for one thing, to be able to be successfully integrated. I do think that there have been instances of planned communities that are successful in the sense that they have a diverse population and they're trying out these design features as a, you know, way to do sprawl in a better way, do suburbia in a better way. And but those cases are generally limited to places that have some government backing to them, that have some subsidized housing. Because the minute you do a planned community where you're really thinking about public space and you're just designing it in a beautiful way, which is what a planned community usually does, you have ample sidewalks and you have great public space and you've thought about the architecture and you've thought about the cohesiveness of this physical form, then you're going to create an incredible demand for such places. And they're going to quickly be pricing out anybody with, with moderate means of income. Seaside Florida is a really good example of that planned community from the 1980s, which was trying very hard to initially to be a diverse community. It was going to be diverse and walkable and a small American small town open to everyone. Pretty soon, it was so great and so beautiful and so well-designed, you know, you can't get in there for under a million. Again, what needs to happen for these to work is some kind of involvement by nonprofit sector or, or government. I think that's pretty much the bottom line. Let's hear from Peter Kindle a principal at Skidmore Owings and Merrill LLP, about The Point, an innovative planned community outside of Salt Lake City. The Point is quite a unique project in my mind because it is both an infill community and a new community, which makes it a little bit unique. It's on a 600-acre prison site, the site of the Utah State Prison. And as such, it has had no access or very little access from the surrounding communities. So it is uh, master planned in that sense in that it's a new build, but at the same time, it's surrounded by infrastructure. So one of our primary ideas and goals was to reconnect the community back to the surrounding cities. I feel quite confident in the sustainable ideas that we brought to the project, not just SOM, but also our team members and the client, frankly, have been very open. Our client is the state of Utah. Um, even though it is a blank slate, even though it's a new build, the fact that we're building a mixed-use community, first of all, is inherently sustainable. The second major sustainable concept is this 15-minute model that you can 
meet all of your daily needs within a 15-minute walk or bike ride. We've also called it a one-car community. We're not excluding the car from this project, but we're just saying you could live here and only have one car. Emily, I'm curious to get your opinion with the announcement from Disney that they're building a planned community while at the same time the U.S. is experiencing a dearth of affordable housing. I wonder what you think is up next for the future of planned communities. Is it all about the cost or even the literal buy-in to a community, or does it go beyond money towards something bigger? Emily, before we hear your answer, let's head to Playa Vista to hear from Casey and then head back to Battery Park City. I'm Casey Kasperzik, supervising producer for The Bold and the Beautiful, and I'm a resident of Playa Vista. When I was looking for somewhere to live, I I looked at different areas in Los Angeles. Playa Vista did not exist. Cut to 15 years later, I got in a lot of traffic and I was like trying to get home and I ended up winding through Playa Vista and I saw this in in the kind of the the commercial part of Playa Vista where they had the YouTube offices and Google and movie theater and all this stuff. And I was really just blown away by how it just developed. I was not aware that it was a planned community. I just felt like it was a place where they were building a lot of mixed-use apartments, townhomes, and businesses. Do you guys see any downsides to living here? I guess the subway's a little far compared to other parts of the city, but now that we have the Oculus, it's really not bad. I don't think there's many downsides. It's a little touristy. Yeah, it's gotten a little touristy, Especially like with the, like the World Trade Center. Yeah. And I guess the Oculus, in a sense, isn't what it used to be. That's pretty new, and it's attracting a lot of tourists, but besides that, I love living here. I feel like I spend a lot of time outside because I live here, and I walk a lot. Yeah, Yeah, like I basically walk everywhere if it's near me. Stay tuned for the next part. And just a reminder, Changing Places is a podcast brought to you by Avis and Young that continues to explore and question our complex relationship with the built world around us. I'm your host, Miriam Sobe. I hope you're liking the show so far. If so, please share Changing Places with your friends. Before we get back to my conversation with Emily, let's go back to Battery Park City in New York City. Um, What would you say are some sort of like pros and cons of living here versus in a non-planned community, so to speak? The pros are summer especially. You can come out here and eat. You can astro-project yourself to any country just by overlooking the water and the sunset. Uh, Some of the cons are the dogs. People who shouldn't own dogs do. That kind of lasts up the community. There's very few cons. It's just brilliant. Again, all the amenities are back. The restaurants are back. Post-COVID, of course. COVID, of course, is a big con because of the small uh, businesses and -and mom-and-pop businesses that had to close. Yeah. So... Very few cons. Do you think planned communities like this is a way to bring together like-minded people in some way, or is it just a place to live? It's, it could be a little bit more diverse. The ethnicity is missing down here. Right. It could be mad white. But there's a lot of diversity, but it could be a little better. Disney recently announced that they're building a planned community. And at the same time, the U.S. is experiencing a dearth of affordable housing I wonder what you think is up next for the future of planned communities. Is it 
all about cost, buy into a community? Does it go beyond money towards something bigger? I think we'll continue to see a lot of planned communities. The question is, can we get a better form of planned community, one that pays attention to all the good things, the public space, the sense of community, have a great kind of quality of life, and also be open to everyone? And we can get there. The question is, are developers, are are institutions like Disney willing to be a little innovative here, willing to be a little creative on the financing side and ensure long-term affordability. And I, if I could ever talk to a Disney executive, I would say, why don't you do a community land trust, which is a mechanism where you just take land out of development in the planned community and you devote it to affordable housing. It's an age-old model. It originated in the 19th century. It's been tried here and there, and it's had success, but it just doesn't catch fire because it requires long-term thinking. And often these kinds of developments have very short time frames. I know earlier we touched on the divisiveness of plant communities. And uh, I was just thinking about I grew up on Saudi Aramco for a few years of my life. And that was an interesting experience because we had everything in the compound, school, grocery store, movie theater, library, all of that. You never really had to leave if you didn't want to. But there were things like Saudis couldn't go to our school at the time. I mean, now I heard that things have changed, but I'm wondering, like, Do these types of planned communities create more social problems than what maybe people thought when they built it, what it was intended for? That's an interesting question, because on the one hand, the planned community is all about inspiring sense of community among the residents. And often the residents are, they're like-minded. If there isn't diversity, there's a similar social strata, but it's it's not a sense of community that really has to do with civic responsibility. So I think that this idea of the sense of community that's supposed to emerge from the planned community might not be a very deep one. It might be pretty shallow. And the other thing that happens is people don't like to be controlled socially. So even in a planned community where you're trying to have this sense of, oh, we all care about the community and we all are very much engaged in um, in coming together to create our community, people, it has been documented that people start to feel manipulated and they're not very happy with that sense of control. That's In that way, it can break down. Again, Peter Kindle. I think a a criticism or a concern that oftentimes people have about planned communities, that they may be perceived as exclusive or exclusionary. I think there's several ways we've tried to address this at the point. I think first and foremost, it will be a mixed-use community, and that that complements the idea of a 15-minute city, is that you can actually live and work here. We have to produce or build housing types that are mid-market or oriented towards, say, entry-level tech workers or entry-level workers in general. We do have some single-family homes in the project, but it's actually a very small percentage of the housing mix. We have higher-density townhome. We have even higher-density Apartments, some of which will be rental, some condos for sale. These will be in the three to five story range. I think the other idea is that you don't have to live in the point to work in the point. 
and you don't have to work in the point to live in the point. It's really a much more fluid idea that you could live at the point and work in downtown Salt Lake, or you could live at the point and work in one of the neighboring communities like Draper. So it's not so regimented that the people that live there work there and vice versa. It's a much more traditional idea of what a city is. Are there any planned communities that you think are doing it right that could be a positive model for the broader sector? As I said, the social diversity within a planned community is going to require some kind of intervention. You know, Hope Six communities, which are government-funded mix of all affordability levels, they have had some issues, they've had some problems, but the basic model is there to have planned communities that are part market rate, part just lightly subsidized, and part full-on affordable public housing. The Community Land Trust model, which comes from England in the 19th century, Ebenezer Howard and his garden cities, there were those uh, development plan communities that came out of that, that theory, we'll call it. Those could also be expanded, and they are expanding Those kinds of communities are here and there, but we need to ramp up. We need to ramp up. Emily, in a moment, I'm going to ask you to look forward and think about what the future holds in store for planned communities. Will they continue to thrive or will they have to adjust to the new needs of our built world? But before we dig into that, let's go back to Casey in Playa Vista for a minute. So the positives of living in a planned community are that there are a lot of amenities that was covered in the HOA fees that I don't have to maintain, such as a gym and the pool and parks and tennis courts and other sport court areas. So for me, that that is a plus so that I can utilize those things. Also, it just there is a sense of community, like that you belong here, like you are a resident of this community, whereas if you live in another city in Los Angeles, you're just a person living in that city. But here I feel like I am a resident of Playa Vista, which puts me in a group of thousands of people when you live in an HOA. You sign up to follow the rules and that's what maintains order. So if you don't if you don't if you don't want to live in somewhere where there's an HOA, then that's fine. But if but choosing that, you're somebody that wants order and and things maintained. I pay two HOA fees and they're very expensive. So I pay one for my division and then I pay one for the overall community. And I think it's different for the different divisions that you live in, but it is a sizable monthly fee. Tell me what you like or dislike about living in a planned community like Battery Park City. It's relatively quiet. So it is a community by itself. I've been here since 2005. Did you move here because you knew it was a planned community or for any other reason? What I did, I moved from another city and I was had a few areas of the town in mind, and one of the things I did was I asked probably half a dozen taxi drivers because they probably know the city better than most. Every single one of them mentioned Battery Park City. Wow. No other place in town they all mentioned. Yeah. So that narrowed it down, and I, I go, this is the place after I did my searching. Yeah. I saw a bang for your buck. There's several newer buildings, maybe a little bit more space, but that's, of course, a relative for New York City. Mm -hmm. But I think it it has a lot of charm to it. We call it our little oasis, getting away. We still have access to the city, but when you need to kind of 
get away from it a while and decompress. What do you think the future holds for planned communities? Do you think they'll continue to thrive or maybe change in the way that they've been presented? I think they will continue to thrive because the more wealth inequality there is in the world, the more that's creating an incredible demand for planned communities and there are profits to be made. And so that means there will be more of them. But I think I don't want to be all gloom and doom. I think as we keep working to publicize and make known the success stories of the diverse communities, of the planned communities that have all those good lessons about designing well and public space and if they can be transit accessible and also diverse through these various programmatic and financing models, we need to just keep pushing that as an option, as a model. And I hope it will gain traction because there are benefits even for the the people who are wealthier in such communities. They have benefits from living in those kinds of environments, too. They have better access to a range of different backgrounds and people, and people do value diversity. I still believe that. Before we wrap up on that note, what would you do if you created a planned community? If there was an Emilyville, what would that look like? I would take all the lessons from the great planned communities that we have, the design lessons, and I would put those together, the mixtures of housing types, the creative housing types like courtyard housing. And I would take all that good stuff and I would use that as the basis of my design. And then I would take a section of the community and I would give it to a community land trust. And I would say, hey, community land trust, nonprofit group, come in here and you guys make sure that there's that 30% of this community is affordable to low-income people forever and for all time. And I'll just give that to you. And I don't have to worry about it. And I can focus on the design and the market rate stuff. That's what I would do. Well, I want to thank you so much, Emily. It's been a, a wonderful time chatting with you. Thank you for joining us on Changing Places. Let's hear from Peter one last time before we go back to Playa Vista to hear from Casey. I think the future of planned communities is actually moving away from this idea of perfectly planned environments. I think people want a little less formality and structure. They want to live in communities that are diverse, not only in terms of the types of people that live there, but also the types of buildings that are there, the types of environments that are offered. So that's positive. We're also seeing a trend towards what I call localness, meaning that People don't want to live in anonymous, gated suburban environments anymore. They want to feel like they're part of a community. So we're seeing more desire to have walkable communities, for instance, bike trails that are close and accessible to everybody because people are much more conscious of their their living environment. So that's great. So sometimes living here, though, does feel a bit like the Truman Show because it's very maintained. The buildings are painted, the lawns are well manicured. 
it does feel a little like you're living in a Disneyland. If Disneyland built a neighborhood, this would be it. Again, that's your choice if you want to live in something like that. For me, I, if to live in a home, a single-family home in a normal in a normal neighborhood, say not a homeowners association neighborhood, like probably is not for me. But here, I feel I feel also a sense of safety uh, too, surrounded by so many other people. From Riverside to Levittown, Poundbury to Catino, the world of planned communities is one which may be just down the street, yet a world away. We can't force anyone to live in a place we choose for them, but when we're choosing where to live, what really matters? A community feel, the local butcher, an independent cinema? I suppose the big question is, does it matter if those three things are located in the East Village of New York or a planned community in Tempe? What we expect from our communities, planned or otherwise, is always the question we rarely consider, and maybe it's time we did. We all share this wonderfully complicated built world, whether you're driving to your planned community or just walking down Main Street to get a cup of coffee. But should there be one world for you as well as a world for everyone else? I suppose that's a question for the ages. I'm Miriam Sobe. This is Changing Places. On our next episode, we're going into the world of abandoned houses. We've all seen the spooky house on the corner or the empty row houses downtown. But what do they mean to our neighborhoods and cities when they sit vacant for years or decades? Join me as we talk to thought leaders who have a lot of ideas on how to not only save one house at a time, but the soul of a city. Changing Places is brought to you by Avis and Young. Our producer is Andrew Pemberton Fowler. Our sound engineer is Patrick Emil. Our producer assistant is Hugh Perkich. Additional production support is provided by Jar Audio.